Eastern Orthodoxy has some unique views on the Trinity because of its historical and cultural influences. Today we're going to look at these views closely and see if they align with Scripture. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I'm your host, Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you're having a wonderful day. We are finishing this Trinity series, so if you are just joining me today, then you have quite a lot of content to check out, to review. If you've been with me so far, then you understand today's topic, or I should say why I chose to do today's topic to really finish this off, because we have, especially in the last couple of episodes, like with monarchical Trinitarianism, with the various church history and heresies and triune monarchy, all of these things that we really have talked about in the last maybe three or four weeks, there has been now a focus on various interpretations of the Trinity, various views on the Trinity. And Eastern Orthodoxy is a very unique religion in that sense. They have a lot of different views than, let's say, Catholicism, even though there are some similarities as well. So today I wanted to devote this particular episode, this final episode, to... Eastern Orthodoxy and their view on the Trinity. But again, if you're just joining me, then you have quite a lot of material to review. So I really encourage that you at least see, in order to understand and grasp fully today, you, you watch those previous episodes because there is there's just so much to talk about. There's so much historical and cultural context when it comes to these things because we're dealing with things that are very fine. If you remember from the um, Heresies episode, or if you haven't watched it, go check it out. That's a pretty important episode. We, we looked at kind of the main heresies, the, the low-hanging fruit, the thing that pretty much any Trinitarian religion will agree is a heresy, <clears throat> like modalism or, you know, subordinationism or different things like this. So we looked at, we looked at these various heresies like Unitarianism, tritheism, all these different approaches to the Trinity, and they're, they're very easy to spot. But then you have other things that are not so easy to spot because culture and tradition have created compromises, compromises on the truth. And, and again, the pattern that all of these have in common is that they reduce the mystery in some way or another. And sometimes the reduction of mystery is not very obvious. It's very subtle. With Unitarianism, it's very obvious. We, oh, we just have to deny the divinity of Christ. There we go. Now we can put God into a box. Now we can understand that there's an unseen God, and then there's kind of a representative that's not God, but, you know, that, that makes sense. Well, that reduces the, the Trinity's mystery, which it is a mystery, and that's pretty easy to spot. But now when you're dealing with something like what we're going to talk about today, which is Eastern Orthodoxy's understanding of, like, essence and energies and all these various things that we're going to talk about today, it's really kind of a mishmash of things, unfortunately, in the sense that I wish I could make this a simpler, I did my best to really structure this episode to make it as straightforward as possible, given the particular topic. But Eastern Orthodoxy is very unique, and it has a lot of interconnected topics. So we're going to be talking about a lot of those topics today. We're going to be looking at things like hesychasm, uh, Gregory Palamas, if you've never heard of him, don't worry, you'll learn about him today, Palamism, Theosis mysticism. We're going to look at a lot of stuff because it all ties together. It really does in Eastern Orthodoxy, which is very interesting. It's a very complex religion, interweaves a lot of different things. So this episode, I hope, will be unique for you. It'll be interesting. 
If you like history, if you like theology, if you like learning about where beliefs come from, there are about a billion Orthodox Christians in the world, so I think this is very relevant. I used to be Orthodox, so this is very interesting to me as well. It's very relevant to me. But again, the Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox view of the Trinity is very unique, and it's unique, unfortunately, in a bad way. It's unique in its own way, but it's unique in a bad way. It's not the truth. The average Orthodox Christian probably doesn't understand the Trinity in the way that orthodoxy actually teaches it because <clears throat> it's very confusing to be honest with you it's very philosophical but nonetheless the average christian who goes to church orthodox church probably doesn't have an in-depth understanding of the actual teaching of the trinity that the orthodox church teaches let alone some of the things that we talked about recently like triune monarchy so these things are very you know you have to understand what what is it that you believe and what assumptions are you taking on when you take on a particular belief? I've talked about this point in everything. Everything you have to understand, what assumptions are you taking on? What do your beliefs say about God? It's very important to know your theology. You don't have to be, you know, obviously a theologian, but certain things like the nature of God are really, really important. Um, you know, because, for example, your, your views on the Trinity... And as you'll see today, because in Orthodoxy, it's actually quite obvious how all these things are related. Your views on the Trinity affect your, your understanding of salvation and your approach to the gospel. Remember when we talked about heresies and subordinationism and how universally in church history, all subordinationists were, were works-based, legalist-tending people. They always focused on the achievements of Christ and being more like Jesus rather than the cross. This is pretty universal among the church fathers. Then you look in history, in subordinationism, and it always defaults to works. Look at Unitarians. Look at, I mean, anybody who basically, like Mormons. Mormons are basically Unitarians. They don't, they don't, they deny the Trinity and they're subordinationists. And so all of these things tend toward legalism. So your view of the Trinity, of the nature of God, and your understanding will determine if you're predisposed to legalism or not. And this is a very important topic, especially with Eastern Orthodoxy, as you will see. And I hope, again, that if you are Eastern Orthodox, that you will just see the truth. I used to be Eastern Orthodox, and this is not designed to insult anybody. But nonetheless, your views on God's nature, especially the Trinity, are very, very important. That's why we're, we're discussing these things, because they impact a lot of people. But everything trickles downward or outward, however you want to think about it, from the nature of God. What you believe about the nature of God affects everything else. That's why I've decided to make these episodes, and especially episodes like this, which are very nuanced. You know, they're very nuanced. They take a lot of research and really careful planning to really deliver the information here. So I hope you will find it interesting. I hope you'll learn something. It's going to be pretty fun. But here's the point. The Eastern Orthodoxy... Their belief in the Trinity is intertwined with mysticism, subordinationism. Again, if you saw the monarchical Trinitarian episode uh, two weeks ago, or two weeks prior to this one, it's part of the series, so go check it out if, you, if you're watching this on a series situation. We, we talked about how Eastern Orthodoxy has a unique view also through the monarchical understanding which is subordinationist in nature. Now, of course, Eastern Orthodoxy is going to deny that because subordinationism is a heresy. 
But if you understand, and we did a great job of documenting church history and seeing how these views actually emerged, go back and watch that episode and learn the truth. Because the, the view that the Eastern Orthodox Church has on the Trinity through the monarchical lens, we're talking about a different side of it now. We're talking about like the core, like the more mystical stuff. But in the monarchical episode, we looked at kind of just the, the the ontological or theological structure of it is wrong, and it's wrong for several reasons. But it also, again, it intertwines things like mysticism, Greek philosophy, Neoplatonism. We're going to look at all this stuff today, and you'll you'll understand hopefully why the Eastern Orthodox view is so wrong. It's just wrong in general, and how it leads to their works based interpretation of the gospel, which again, I'll document that. You will see that orthodoxy's official position is works and grace, which is, of course, contrary to the gospel. So remember that all heresies have something in common, and I'm not calling Eastern Orthodoxy a heresy. I'm saying the thing that you see that's in common of all these things is that they reduce the mystery. They always attempt to reduce the mystery to make something more sequential, put God here and Jesus there, and now we can understand how they work. Okay, so Jesus generates from the Father and is spirating or whatever else. Now now we have a sequence. When in reality, the, the picture that the Bible paints for you is that the Son and the Father are equals. The Son is equally Yahweh as the Father is equally Yahweh. So is the Spirit equally Yahweh. Nobody is generating anybody. Nobody's proceeding forth. I mean, the Spirit is... Proceeding from the Father in the sense that we looked at that in the Filioque controversy, that the, the verse on the, the Spirit proceeding from the Father is not in the sense of ontology or, or any kind of economical function from eternity where, where, the, where the Spirit is generated or spirated or coming out from the Father in some sense, but rather it's a statement about the source authenticating where the Spirit is from. The Spirit is equally Yahweh as the Father is equally Yahweh. And of course, we looked at the the history of the word begotten and how that's been misinterpreted because of the subordinationist culture and history in the early church, how they looked at begotten as more of a thing like how you beget children, how you create children. Of course, Jesus is not created, but that the compromise that was struck was that begotten is kind of this eternally begotten thing. And we looked at how that's completely wrong and how begotten in the Bible in terms of how it's appropriated to Jesus has nothing to do with him being generated from the Father, but rather everything to do with his with the Christs, who is also human, right? He's the vessel that God chose to reveal himself through, Jesus of Nazareth. It has to do with the Christ being appointed to do all these various things, to, to be the propitiation, to be the high priest, to be the Messiah, to be in the end, when there's a consummation, we looked at this in Triune Monarchy, we, we, we looked at how he's appointed to be the vessel that Yahweh, the Triune God, will rule through forever. So begotten has to do with appointment. And so again, all of these things come together into a an erroneous view of the Trinity. So today's going to be interesting. We're going to look at a lot of different things. I hope you'll find it interesting. Use, use the timestamps and, you know, if you need to watch this in parts, watch it in parts, take notes, because there's a lot to cover. We're going to do some, we're going to do some good reading, but you're going to learn quite a lot. I really hope you will, because I really labored to make this very interesting and very to the point, because there's a lot to talk about. We're going to be skimming the surface. We're going to look at 
again, a lot of different things within the Eastern Orthodox religion and history. And these things themselves, they could be a study in and of themselves. I'm just touching on them. We're going to be reading some things and we're going to comment on it. But Eastern Orthodoxy is very interesting because it does reduce the mystery of the Trinity in the sense that it follows in the pattern of the heresies that I mentioned. Again, I'm not calling Eastern Orthodoxy a heresy. I'm saying that the understanding of a monarchical trinity and, and the things we're going to be talking about today with Gregory Palamas and his beliefs, which influenced greatly Eastern Orthodox beliefs, all of these things attempt to reduce the mystery. And you'll see what I mean. Interestingly enough, Eastern Orthodoxy, because it's very much wrapped up in mysticism, also tries to increase the mystery. And you'll see what I mean by that too. So it's, it's again, it's a very unique and complex topic, very in-depth, but uh, hopefully you'll, you'll really get something out of it today. Now, if you're Eastern Orthodox, my goal is for you to learn the truth. And I, and I really mean that. I don't mean it in like a condescending way, you know, sarcastic or condemning way. I really hope and pray that you'll learn the truth, that you will indulge me. If you're Catholic, same thing. Realize that the history and culture of organized religion is what the prophets warned us about, that a true faith, a true relationship with Jesus is not religious in nature. It's a relationship. So hopefully you'll learn something about today. And if you're just learning, if you're maybe you're Protestant, you're not Protestant, maybe whatever you are, and you're just learning, I hope you do learn something. And I hope that you learn, if you have other Eastern Orthodox friends, that you learn to share the truth with them as well and why what they believe is not true and lovingly encourage them to learn the truth. So maybe you can send them this video. Again, I was raised Eastern Orthodox. I went to Catholic schools. I have nothing against Orthodox people. My mom is still Orthodox. We have debates all the time, obviously. Uh, but I have nothing against Orthodox people. I really care deeply for you. I know the struggle. Again, I was an altar boy. I was president of my Eastern Orthodox youth group. So I was very very involved in the church. Uh, you know, I went to retreats and various things. So I, I know the religion. I know the struggle. And I deeply care that you learn the truth because orthodoxy and, and these beliefs, even though it seems like they're not related, you'll see how they are related to orthodoxy's teaching on salvation. Orthodoxy does not give you assurance of salvation because they are not in alignment with the gospel, with the true gospel. And of course, orthodox priests will deny that, uh, but it is what it is. You know, I, I have seen many quotes from, you know, my mom sends me stuff all the time, but I've seen many quotes from various monks on grace, on Jesus, on the gospel that I actually really love. I really align with some of the things that I've seen Orthodox monks and priests say. Quotes. Very good. But then you also have things where I've, I've got into a debate with an Orthodox priest where he told people in his homily that unless you fast, you can't be saved. So you have that side of it too. And this is the problem because as a religion that is based on certain things that we're, we'll talk about today. We're going to unpack it. As a religion that is based on these values that we're going to unpack, it manifests towards works. It always does. Because orthodoxy is synergistic, meaning they base salvation on free will and free will choices. We'll get into this as well. And you'll see how this mystical mysticism and tradition and view of the Trinity and everything else impacts that as well. It really does. In an interesting way, in a very different way than the monarchical view, which also is orthodox. So they're kind of superimposed on each other. 
That's why this is just such a fascinating religion. It really is. I mean, there's so many very interesting things about Eastern Orthodox, even though, again, they're, they're not correct, but they're interesting nonetheless. So there's a wide view within Eastern Orthodoxy, but as a system, it is not the fullness of relationship with Christ. It really isn't. That doesn't mean, I, I'm not saying Orthodox Christians aren't saved, but you are being deceived by your religion. There are many things that are wrong with Eastern Orthodoxy, and I encourage you through this episode, through this whatever purveying of knowledge that we're looking at, to examine the evidence. Always go by the evidence. Don't go by emotions. Don't go by authority and what other people tell you. Go by the evidence. See what the history tells you and he would see what scripture tells you. And put them next to your traditions and see if this is the right thing. And that's what we're going to do today. And hopefully, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will see the truth that orthodoxy is not in alignment with scripture and the history of the culture of the orthodox religion is what has led it to go astray. So without further ado, let's start with something called emanations in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now this is from Wikipedia. Again, we're just going to do quite a bit of reading today so you really get a feel for what's going on. Okay, here we go. I kind of lost my place of thought here for a second. Emanation, literally dripping, is a belief found in Neoplatonism. And we're going to look at what Neoplatonism is in just a second. That the cause of certain beings or states or being consists of an overflow from the essence of God or other higher spiritual beings, as opposed to a special act of creation. Again, this is, pay attention to these words. This overflow is usually conceived in a non-temporal way as a permanent relationship of causation rather than as an event causing an entity to come into existence at a given point in time, which is what the Bible tells you with creation. The word emanation can refer to either the process or of emanation or to the thing being emanated. Equivalent concepts are found in Gnosticism and in the Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. This article explores similar concepts in Eastern Orthodoxy and Eastern Catholicism. So yeah, if you're Catholic and you're an Eastern Catholic, uh, pay attention because this concerns you. Concepts. The Neoplatonic concept of emanation can be compared to the statements made by 14th century Eastern Orthodox theologian Gregory Palamas. So there's our friend Gregory, which we're going to become very familiar with today. He drew a distinction between God's essence and energies, affirming that God was unknowable in his essence, but knowable in his energies. Very important distinction because the Eastern Orthodox Church still believes this today. And, and the idea, again, is that God is fundamentally unknowable. We're going to come back to this over and over again, but let's continue. Palamas never enumerated God's energies, but described them as ways that God could act in the universe, and particularly on people, from the light shining from the face of Moses after he descended from Mount Sinai to the light surrounding Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on Mount Tabor during the transfiguration of Jesus. This was, by the way, a vision so, because Eastern Orthodoxy believes in the immortal soul and life after death and all these different things, these are Greek philosophical ideas, which again, I expand on in my Afterlife series, but nonetheless, these this was a vision. It wasn't actually Moses and Elijah that were coming from heaven and floating around. Moving on. For Palamas, God's energies were not separate from God, but were God. So, you have a, you have a difference between essence and energies. And the energies are still God, but the essence is what's kind of the unknowable God. So keep that in mind, because 
it gets confusing quick. However, the idea of energies was kept distinct from the idea of the three persons of the Trinity. The unity of the three persons of the Trinity being united by God's transcendent essence. So you have essence, which unites the three persons, and then you have the energies, which are separate from the persons, but they're still God. Do you see how this creates an immediate problem? You have the three persons that are united by essence. That's God, triune being. Okay, so far so good. But then you have the energies that are emanating from God, which are also God, but separate from the persons. Now you're, you're kind of making like a copy, like a copy of the Trinity that's also God. So you have, it, it's, it gets very confusing very quickly. And again, it's, it's all conjecture and mysticism. But anyway, moving on. The Orthodox theologian Nik Niketas Stethanos describes a tenfold hierarchy. Keep this word in mind too. Tenfold hierarchy, with, which can be paralleled to both Kabbalistic belief in ten successive emanations, known as the Sephirot, if you know anything about Kabbalah, and the Neo-Pythagorean belief in the power of the first ten numbers. Again, Greek occultism and philosophy. As set out in the Theologumea Artemikea, an anonymous work described to Lambicus, to Iambicus, or Anatolius of Laodicea. In Judaism, a similar hierarchy can be found in the entirely non-Kabbalistic system of Maimonides, who posits ten ranks of angels from the different biblical terms of them, the lowest of which is Ishim, literally meant. Well, first off, the Bible doesn't actually make all these different hierarchies of angels. So these are, Maimonides was a famous rabbi, and... These are traditions of men. This is like oral tradition. But nonetheless, look at the parallel. Look at the parallels between mysticism and the occult and other mystical religions. And just notice that because we're going to get deeper and deeper with this stuff. But just, just raise your eyebrow and notice that because this should be a red flag for you if you have discernment. Now, the, dis the distinction between essence and energies is not needed it's not needed. You'll see why Gregory Palamas, at least why I think he created it, is pretty obvious, but it's not needed. It's not needed because it already exists in the Father and the Son. The Father is the unseen sort of God that you don't see, right? But then Jesus is the one who revealed God to you, to mankind. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Nobody has seen the Father. This is uh, John 1 verses 18, no one has ever seen God. In this case, this is being referred to the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So now how do you, how do you reconcile that? Do you say that, do you say that Jesus, obviously the only God, well, who's that? Well, the one who's at the Father's side. So he's also God equally, equally God. He has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known. The Son is equally God as the Father is equally God. Nobody's seen the Father, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. John 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what Jesus says. And ultimately, even in the Old Testament, we'll, we'll touch on this again, but even in the Old Testament, you had the distinction between the angel of Yahweh, who was... God, who was, who is God, who was God, he was walking around on the earth doing things, receiving worship, claiming to be God, claiming God's actions, but yet obviously not the God that you couldn't see because he was right in front of you. He was the 
personified God, made manifest. But he also spoke of God in the third person, of the God that you couldn't see. So you have this distinction already that the Bible makes. But the Bible doesn't make that distinction in the sense that the Son is less God than the Father, or, or the thing that is seen is less than the thing that is not seen. And this is what we want to really drive at home today, which is that Gregory Palamas and this whole mystical mysticism in general prioritizes the unknowable over the knowable, meaning what's unseen is the truth, whereas the thing that's seen is not true. And the whole point of the Bible is that God has made himself fully knowable and fully known. There is no hidden truth or hidden unknowable God that you'll never get to know. The entire consummation of this plan when Jesus comes back to earth and the triune being rules through him is that you will be in the fullest possible presence of God and you will see God to the fullest extent. There's no hidden unknowable God that you won't see that you need to see his emanations, which are equally God, but separate from the persons. You see, this stuff just makes distinctions where the Bible really doesn't. The whole point is to get excited that you're going to see God in the physical world. This is the, the profound mystery of the incarnation and how it's consummated in triune monarchy, which is what we talked about in a previous episode. But John 14 verses 8 through 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have, you, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So if you've seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. If God is unknowable, fundamentally, then does that mean that Jesus, the incarnation, was an emanation that was separate from the persons? Do you see how this immediately gets problematic? How it doesn't really... It's not in alignment with the Incarnation. The Incarnation tells you that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And of course, when he returns, he's going to be revealing himself in full glory. But nonetheless, he was fully God and fully man. So when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. There is no, like, extra God that you need to see or that you can't see because he's unknowable. That's the point, is that God has made himself known. So the, the fundamental underpinning of, of this whole idea of essence and energies and, uh, and uh, emanations, and then there's like the essence that you don't see, there's the unknowable God, and the, there's the emanations that you do see. These things ultimately are refuted by the incarnation. The Bible doesn't make these kinds of distinctions. They're a philosophy. Because Gregory Palamas could not wrap his mind around certain things, which we'll touch on a little bit later. That's why he came up with this concept of distinction. He couldn't get his mind around how we would be conformed to the image of Christ. How can we become like God? There must be some part of God that we can't become like, and there must be a part of God that we are becoming like. So there's maybe essence and energies. There's an unknowable God, fundamentally, because again, a lot of mysticism around that time. We'll look into church history, but it's wrong. It really is. It pulls from older, older mystical practices. And as you can see more and more, you'll see the parallels between these things. But Jesus reveals the unknown God. He is, in the sense, like not the unknown God, but the unseen God. He reveals and makes him, makes him known. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of creation, meaning if you've seen Christ, you've seen the invisible God. That is the point. There's nothing left unknowable. God has not reserved any part of himself in the sense of revealing who he is in the incarnation. You see Jesus, you see God fully. And then when he returns, it will be the fullest extent of that, which is a fascinating idea. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, Orthodox might take this and interpret it as well. He's an emanation or he's radiating from God or eternally begotten. But that's not really his saying. It's saying in context that if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. He is it. He is the form that, that God chose to show to you, to reveal himself to. Now, if you're taking that and saying, well, okay, but there's still some part of God that we'll never get to know. There, there's like an unknown or unseen you know, God that's just untouchable. Well, now you're not really aligning with what the Bible wants you to know, which is that God has come to be with you. When, when it says in John that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word for dwelt is skenao. It's, it's a Greek word for tabernacled. Tabernacled. And if you use that in, in a typological study, you look at the Old Testament, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, it's, it's so profound, the pictures that are formed of Christ. The tabernacle was covered with like badger skin. It was very rough on the outside. But on the inside, it was very beautiful. With gold and the Ark of the Covenant, you had all this kind of divinity picture within the tabernacle. On the outside, it was very ugly. It was very rough. And of course, that relates to the incarnation, where, where Jesus had nothing about him that was beautiful as a human being, but yet he was fully God. So he was tabernacled. But also tabernacled means pitching a tent among his creation. He didn't come and build a giant castle. He didn't come and build a giant fortress. He didn't come in full glory. He came as a humble carpenter, born in a manger. He pitched a tent among his creation. He wanted to be made known. He wanted to be felt and touched. He wanted to talk with people. He wanted to embrace people. He wanted to eat with people. He wanted to get stains on his shirts. He wanted to be among his creation. Now, if we say that all of that means that, well, there's still some some part of God that's kind of, we'll never really get to know. I mean, we, that's the unseen God that we have to connect with through, you'll see through hesychasm and through all these various mystical practices that orthodoxy teaches, especially in, in kind of the monk life and like Mount Athos and things like that. These fundamentally seek to connect with a mystical God, with a mystical experience of God, rather than connecting with Jesus, with who God has really revealed himself to, to be, which is a person, a real flesh and blood person that is fully God and fully human being. We are created to be in the physical world and to live in the physical world. We have a soul, but we are contingent beings. And God entered that reality to be with his creation in the physical world, not for you to engage in mystical practices to try to commune with something unseen or to be, you know, elevating yourself to some transcendental type of state. And again, all these things, it sounds crazy, but I will back them up. You'll see how there is a lot of parallel between transcendental meditation and hesychasm and all these things that orthodoxy teaches. 
But another important couple Bible verses for you to, to consider are this. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. All of these are on hierarchy and angels. Warning against false teachers. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We have a simple gospel, a simple eternal gospel, which is that Jesus died for your sins. By faith, you are saved and justified. Proclaim that to the world so that they may enter into a relationship with Jesus. Those who are called will enter into a relationship with Christ. But orthodoxy, as you'll soon see over and over again, is rife with mysticism and has departed from this simple call. It really has, because orthodoxy doesn't really evangelize anybody. It's a very closed-off kind of religion. And when they do recruit people, or when they baptize people into the religion, you're being baptized into a religion, not into a relationship. Gosh, there's so much to talk about, and again, I'm not looking to offend anybody, but look, the Bible doesn't make any distinctions between God's essence and energies. It makes a distinction between the God that you don't see, that obviously exists, and the God that has made himself known, which is the same God through Jesus Christ. And there is that distinction, but it's not really a distinction in the sense that you need to worry about the unseen God, because he's made himself fully known. So pay attention to Jesus. Focus your eyes on Jesus, because you will see Christ when he returns in full glory, and you will be with God. That's the ultimate experience. That's the consummation. That's the experience that we should be longing for and hoping for, not doing various exercises to get into spiritual trances to connect with the unseen God, with, with what is unseen. That's mysticism. On face value, just looking at what we just looked at, there's a lot more to look at, but on face value, these beliefs have a lot in common with mystical practices. Kabbalah, other mystic, mystical things, we'll look at some other occult things as well, but there's no difference between this and other mystical practices in other religions. So that should raise your eyebrow, the underpinnings of, of these teachings. As you'll soon see, with also with history, we'll look at, there's a lot of things surrounding Gregory Palamas and the time that he grew up in and other things that were influential before that, that really painted the early church with a lot of mystical practices. Catholics are not immune to this either. Catholics are, you know, if you've studied like the Jesuits and various monk orders and different things like that, it's no different. Mysticism is, is everywhere. So we have to be careful because the Bible tells you not to obsess over hierarchies and myths. Like, for example, another two verses I meant to, to cite are Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human traditions according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Later in, actually earlier in Colossians, it says in chapter 2, verse 18, no, no, this is later, my bad. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and the worship of angels. Does that sound like Eastern Orthodoxy to you? It does to me. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. When we depart from the simplicity of the gospel and we focus on 
hierarchies of angels and, and various philosophical distinctions and conjectures. And all these various things that we're talking about today, we are departing from the simple truth of the gospel. Now, if you know Eastern Orthodoxy and its history, it's very based on Greek philosophy. Greek, a lot of Greek philosophers were influencing that, a lot of mysticism. Again, I'm going to cover all of this today so that you really are edified. But this is the thing. It's not in alignment with what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible warns you of these things. Because they were very popular at that time, too. Gnosticism was very popular. Gnosticism has been around forever. And there's a lot of Gnostic-leaning type attitudes in these particular practices. Now I want to take a look at a couple more things. We'll look at the influence of various beliefs in history, which, which are very, uh, very, very interesting. So the first one is emanationism in general, which is, again, this is now we're going from emanations in Eastern Orthodoxy to emanations in the world of the occult. What is the idea of the emanations? What, what does that mean to people in other backgrounds, especially the occult? So let's read about it. Emanation is an idea in the cosmology and cosmogony of certain religious or philosophical systems. Emanation from the Latin emanere means to flow from or to pour forth out, to pour forth out of, is the mode by which all things are derived from the first reality or principle. All things are derived from the first reality or perfect God by steps of degradation to lesser degrees of the first reality of, or God. And at every step, the emanating beings are less pure, less perfect, less divine. Emanationism is the transcendent principle from which everything is derived and is opposed to both creationism, wherein the universe is created by a sentient God who is separate from creation. This is what the Bible teaches. Emanationism is contrary to that. And materialism, which posits no underlying subjective and or ontological nature behind phenomena being imminent. Origins. Emanationism is a, co is a cosmological theory which asserts that all things flow from an underlying principle or reality, usually called the absolute or Godhead. Any teachings which involve emanation are usually in opposition to creation ex nihilo, as emanation advocates that everything has always existed and has always been created from nothing. It advocates that everything has always existed and has not been created from nothing. So... The Bible tells you that everything was created from nothing. But if things are emanating from God, that is in contrary, in contradiction to being created from nothing, where God is separate from creation. That's very interesting to note. The primary classical exponent of emanationism was Neoplatonic philosopher Platonius in his Enneads described all things phenomenal and otherwise an emanation. So Platonius was a philosopher that basically was the one who really spearheaded, <laughs> spearheaded this idea. But it's not, it didn't originate with Plutonius. These types of things are very old. It's just Greek mysticism. Uh, for, emanation from the one. Emanationism is compared to a diffusion from the one, or which, of which there are three primary hypostases, the one, the intellect, and the soul. After, another advocate of emanationism was Michael Servetus, who was burned at the stake for his non-Trinitarian cosmology. Occultism. Emanation, emanationism, gosh, that's a tough word to say, is a common teaching found in the occult and esoteric writings, according to Owen. 
Quote, Theosophy draws on Neoplatonic emanationism. Isn't that interesting? If you know anything about Theosophy and Helena Blavatsky, who was the grandmother of the New Age movement and famous Satanist in the 1800s, she was the one who created Theosophy. And really Theosophy, not like she created, I mean, Theosophy, the principles are so old. Nothing new under the sun. It's just ultimately the worship of Lucifer. But anyway, Theosophy draws on Neoplatonic emanationism. In particular, the concept of separation from the return to the absolute, i.e. you will be like God, and reworks the Eastern concepts of karma and reincarnation to provide an evolutionary theory for both humankind and the universe. Theosophy contends that all organisms, including animals and human beings, and all matter flow from a pure spiritual formation in the absolute to a material one over time to become materialized and they will later return to the absolute after the cosmic cycle of life. This is pagan theology, paganism. Just like the Hindus believe in the Brahman and the, you know, whatever other, like Buddhism and reincarnation. It's really, it's all the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun, just different flavors. As Morgan summarizes the doc, the secret doctrine laid out in an emanatious view of the del development of the universe. Now, if you know Helena Blavatsky, again, she's the one who wrote the secret doctrine. There's a lot of stuff in there that is very interesting, not in a good way, but it's at least to be aware of what these people believe in. People who run the world. A process of ebb and flow in which spirit gradually unfolded itself in matter, attaining consciousness and returning to spirit in a higher and more realized form. This is New Age philosophy today. According to the emanatious cosmology of Madame Blavatsky, there she is, uh, all monads emerge from divine unity at the beginning of a cosmic cycle, and return to this source at its close. Now, this also is the underpinning for why these New Age beliefs and pagan beliefs believe that everything is divine. Namaste, right? I recognize the divinity in you. You will be like God. All of these things are related. So if you emanate from the one source, the universe, the cosmic whatever, then you're also kind of a part of that divine source. You're divine too, inherently. That means you can choose the good. Equally, as you can choose the bad, you can choose between good and evil. And if you can choose the good, then you don't need you don't need God. You can govern yourself. Do you see how this works? It's all related. It's all one big mishmash of a uh, lie from the Garden of Eden. Blavatsky, in her book *The Key to Theosophy*, 1889, wrote that quote: "We believe in a universal divine principle, the root of all, from which all proceeds, and within which all shall be at the end of the great cycle of being." Occultist Samuel on Weir taught emanationism from his studies with the Kabbalah and Gnosticism. He mapped out a complex esoteric cosmology with matter flowing from different planes of existence, all existing in the absolute. Again, all these people, notice how all these people make the emphasis on the thing that is unseen. That's the real thing. This is Gnosticism, the idea that the physical world is a trap and the true reality is the immaterial one, which again, there's some truth to it, but we are physical beings with a soul, not an immortal soul that lives on after death, but we have a soul. We are integrated beings and we live in this physical world. This is not a trap. It's a gift from God to live here. And because eventually one day we will live with God and we will see him in the physical world. That's a gift, not a trap. As Dawson 2007 comments, quote, as with esoteric thought in general, Weir holds that the universe originated in the ordering activity of the absolute upon chaotic primordial matter, giving rise to emanating the subsequent planes of the created order or pleroma. So 
as you can see, this idea of emanationism is very much present in the occult. It is an occult idea. It's not in line with the Bible because the Bible actually tells you that things were created from nothing. God is separate from his creation, fundamentally. He's transcendent. That's one of his attributes. But emanationism says that everything flows out from the one, and therefore you have some divinity in you. That's the point. And that divinity, of course, gives you the ability to choose good, and you can be like God. Do you see how all of this is related? And Eastern Orthodoxy has a view of emanations through the essence and energies idea, the distinction made by Gregory Palamas that we looked at. And we'll look at more of it too, but here's another one called Anima Mundi. The Anima Mundi, or world soul, is according to several systems of thought, an intrinsic connection between all living beings, which relates to the world in much the same way as the soul is connected to the human body. Although the concept of the Anima Mundi originated in classical antiquity, similar ideas can be found in the thoughts of later European philosophers such as Spinoza, Leibniz, Kant, Schelling, and Hegel, particularly in his concept of Weltgeist. You can see a picture of this. This is kind of this woman, which is very interestingly uh, kind of paralleled with the Virgin Mary, but that's a whole nother can of worms. But you can see this, this idea of this Mother Earth, world soul, pantheism, everybody's part of the consciousness type of thing. This is all the same stuff. But let's read a little bit about it. Gnosticism. The Anima Mundi was borrowed from Platonist philosophy into several Gnostic sects. Again, Plato and Neoplatonism, which were very old, influenced Gnosticism, influenced all of these occult beliefs, including the beliefs that the church took on because it took on a lot of these converts early on. So you have to understand where these things come from. Manichaeism, which we'll look at in just a second. In Manichaeism, the anima mundi was also called the light soul and the living soul, contrasting it with matter, which was associated with lifelessness and death, within which in which the anima mundi was imprisoned. Again, you have the you have this sense that you know, the soul is really the the eternal reality, and you have an immortal soul, and you can be like God. You just have to escape. You have to transcend this physical body. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because once you die, that's it. Then you get resurrected either to the resurrection of glory or to the resurrection of judgment. So this whole deception about an immortal soul and transcending the body that the Greeks were obsessed with, why they thought the resurrection was foolishness, which we'll look at also, all of this is designed to deceive you, or deceive at least at the time, still today, so that you focus on the wrong things and that you die in your sins. Do you see how evil this is? Moving on. The, the Anima Mundi was personified as the suffering Jesus, who, like the historical Jesus, was depicted as being crucified in the world. The Mystica Crucifixio was, present, was present in all parts of the world, including the sky, soil, and trees, as expressed in the Coptic Manichaean Psalms. Lot of interesting things to talk about here. Manichaeism, I've probably never even heard of it, but Manichaeism is a very it was a very influential religion during the first couple centuries, like the third, third to the sixth century, I believe. We'll, we'll double check. But pantheism, Jesus, the suffering Jesus in the whole world, and he's in the air and the birds in the sky and all of these mystical ideas. Gnosticism, if you understand this climate 
of the early church, you understand, you, you can start to see, which we'll get to later with Gregory Palamas, how these things emerged and where they came from. Judaism. In Jewish mysticism, a parallel concept is that of the chokma, Leah, uh, which is the all-encompassing supernatural wisdom that transcends, orders, and vitalizes all of creation. This is not, yeah, this is, I was going to say, it's not Judaism, it's mysticism. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov states that this sublime wisdom may be apprehended by a perfect tzaddik, righteous man. Thus, the tzaddik attains cosmic consciousness, and this is thus is empowered to mitigate all division and conflict within creation. Do you see the lie from the Garden of Eden and its various flavors? It, this can be apprehended by the wisdom to basically be like God can be apprehended by somebody who's righteous. Meaning you can work your way into being like God and have cosmic consciousness or Christ consciousness. Of course, they don't call it that, but it's basically the same idea. Jewish mysticism, no different than New Age philosophy, no, distant, no different than theosophy, satanic, luciferian practices. All of these things are the same. It's easy to get lost in the weeds as you read all these things, but my goal is to extract them so you can see it's the same thing. The devil gets you with all these different flavors, but in the end, once you learn to see the same thing, uh, then it's it's obvious. Now, I want to read about Manichaeism because it's a very interesting topic as how it influenced the development of these ideas in, in the church early on. Manichaeism, which again, probably you haven't heard of in New Persian, uh, is a former major world religion founded in the 3rd century by the Parthian prophet Mani in the Sasanian Empire. Manichaeism teaches an elaborate dualistic cosmology. Dualism is part of the occult. Describing the struggle between a good spiritual world of light and an evil material world of darkness. You see, this, you see the same themes of Gnosticism, like the material world is evil, and it has to be transcended. Whereas the Bible tells you that the earth was made to be inhabited and that it will be resurrected so we can live on the earth because it's good. Creation was good when God made it. He looked upon creation and said, it is good. So these fundamental beliefs where the focus is on the spiritual and rejecting material creation is a lie from the pit of hell. It is the lie from the Garden of Eden designed to subvert humanity and to subvert your relationship with God. But nonetheless, you can see they're very popular. Through an ongoing process that takes place in human history, light is gradually removed from the world of matter and returned to the world of light. So emanationism kind of stuff, whence it came from. Manny's teaching was intended to combine, succeed, and surpass the teachings of Christianity. So he's antichrist. Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Marcionism, Hellenistic and Rabbinic Judaism, Gnostic movements, ancient Greek religion, Babylonian, and other Mesopotamian religions. So it's really, it was the hodgepodge mystery religion of the day and mystery cults. It reveres Manny as the final prophet after Zoroaster, the Gautama Buddha, and Jesus Christ. Again, antichrist religion. Antichrist, by the very definition, meaning against Christ. Manichaeism was quickly, quickly successful and spread through Aramaic-speaking regions. It thrived between the 3rd and 7th centuries, and its height was one of the most, at its height, it was one of the most widespread religions in the world. Did you know that? Very interesting, isn't it? Manichaean churches and scriptures existed as far east as the Han Dynasty and as far west as the Roman Empire. Huge. 
It was briefly the main rival to early Christianity in the competition to replace classical polytheism before the spread of Islam. Under the Roman, uh, under the Roman dominant, Manichaeism was persecuted by the Roman state and was eventually stamped out in the Roman Empire. So very interesting bit of history, because if you understand again that these things were very popular, tradition, right? A lot of people that were coming into Christianity were coming from these belief systems. Third through the seventh century, that was the height of Christian, you know, like the the pagan converts. That's when Constantine created his church-state situation, legalized Christianity, Christians stopped being persecuted, so they were getting converted. But a lot of these pagan converts were coming from Manichaeism, from Gnosticism, from all of these belief systems where they were completely antichrist. They were all about, you're inherently divine, you can choose the good as you choose the bad, emanations, we're all connected, you know, all these different, again, mystery religions. There's nothing new under the sun. If you're familiar with this stuff... I, I, I have a background in the New Age. I was very much into New Age stuff and New Age philosophy. So for me, these stuff, this is nothing new under the sun. It's as old as time. But nonetheless, look at the parallels. Look at the parallels. And now we have to do some putting together because all these things are connected. Eastern Orthodoxy emanations have roots in Greek philosophy and they parallel the occult. Very obviously so. If you don't see the connections then go and read these things for yourself. We're going to still read some other resources as well, like Neoplatonism, but look at the connections. Study these and see that Eastern Orthodoxy's view of the emanations are based in mysticism. They share and have parallels with the occult, with Gnosticism, and with things that the Bible definitely does not teach. And in fact, it teaches against. The occult mystery religions always put a priority on what is unseen. And of course, this is also seen in Eastern Orthodoxy, where the where the efforts are always to connect to the unseen through mystical experiences, through repetitive prayer, like hesychasm, which we'll talk about. It, the emphasis is on the mystical rather than the real, which is what God created. Creation is good. Of course, it's cursed, but it's going to be redeemed. Creation still testifies of the beauty and amazing genius of God. And we are created beings. We're designed to be in creation and to enjoy it, to steward it. And that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. It really will come and be consummated. But the Bible reveals to you that God became man and revealed himself fully. When Jesus returns, he's going to be, he's not going to be God, but God as a triumph being will rule through the body of Christ. You will see Jesus fully. There's no unseen thing that you won't see through Christ. And that's the mystery. I mean, that's a profound mystery. What is that going to be like? I don't know. It's going to be an experience that we can't possibly wrap our minds around. But nonetheless, this is what the Bible promises you. That's the great culmination of history. That God, the invisible God, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the form that God chose to reveal himself through in the physical world. So it's going to be pretty glorious. There is no better God or truer God or whatever more genuine God than Jesus. Jesus is it. He is God. He's, the, he's God in the fullest sense of the word, not in any 
proceeding from God or being generated or spirated or subordinate to God or any other kind of version where it puts Jesus in a sequence coming out from the Father. Jesus is God as a triune being made flesh, revealed. And when he comes back to rule, the triune being will be all in all, including Jesus of Nazareth. So when we see Jesus, we will see God in his fullest sense. There is no unseen thing that will be hidden from you. That's a profound thought. But Gnosticism, of course, makes the emphasis on the immortal soul, on transcending this plane of existence, on there being like a, a better reality, like, the, you know, like the unseen reality is the, the more real than this one. That's Gnosticism. Whereas the Bible tells you that, again, the, the earth was made to be inhabited. You have to be here. This is your reality. It's as real as it gets. And, you know, today, like Gnosticism has many forms. For example, the Matrix movies. I've talked about this before. I watched the, all three of them. And the first one was cool. I mean, it's a fun little movie. But you notice as it gets, especially towards the last one, increasingly more religious. If you know anything about Gnosticism, you, you realize how utterly religious those movies are and what these people actually believe. And how the Matrix is really just one giant Gnostic philosophy that you have to escape the world, that we're living in a simulation. These thoughts are actually very prevalent today. It's really just Gnosticism with a technological spin. There's nothing different. It's very seductive, and that's why Gnosticism was so seductive in you know, the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries. For hundreds of years, people were Gnostics because it's seductive. People are Gnostics today because it's seductive. Because, you, oh, I, it's what I don't see that's really the thing. And you start thinking about it and you get it in your head rather than just being in the world that God created as a human being and realizing that you're going to be resurrected. You have a body that God has given you. You're going to have a glorified body when you're resurrected. These things were foolishness to the Greeks. That's why, again, <laughs> when, when the pagan converts came into Constantine's new church-state situation, they influenced all of these ideas. That's why you can't rely on the church fathers or tradition for your beliefs. You have to see what does the Bible say? Forget the church fathers. They were all over the place. Most of them were pagan converts or, or influenced heavily by Manichaeism, Gnosticism, Greek philosophy, Platonism, Neoplatonism that teach all sorts of philosophical Gnostic ideas. If your beliefs have in common with the world, the Bible tells you not to be friends with the world. And in fact, everything the Bible says is contrary to the world. So the moment you start sharing beliefs with the occult, with mysticism, that's something to be very, very careful with. Now, Neoplatonism is something I mentioned earlier, and we're going to read about it right now, which is an underpinning philosophy of a lot of this stuff. You notice like with Helena Blavatsky, uh, you know, the, the secret doctrine, theosophy, all these things are based on Neoplatonism. But Neoplatonism wasn't just exclusive to the occult. Everybody pulled from that because, again, remember Manichaeism. It was practically all over the world, this stuff. And these people came into Christianity and became converts. Very, very interesting. Neoplatonism is a version of Platonic philosophy that emerged in the 3rd century AD against the background of Hellenistic philosophy and religion. The term does not encapsulate a set of ideas such as much as a set of thinkers. Among the common ideas that it maintains is monism, 
the doctrine that all the reality can be derived from a single principle, which is the one. So again, it, it, notice the, the trends here. Neoplatonism emerged in third century. Then Manichaeism was what? Very popular between the third and the seventh century. So these things are like a chain of events that are influencing. And of course, Neoplatonism also takes from Plato, which came before that. So everything is, again, it's all the same stuff. Nothing new under the sun. Neoplatonism began with Ammonius Saccas and his student Platonius and stretched to the 6th century. So even while Manichaeism was very prevalent in the ancient world, Neoplatonism was also a very prevalent reality. So most people believe these things in the ancient world as Christianity was coming up. And again, when Christianity became officially not like being persecuted, which was around 321 AD, actually it was before that, but anyway, the, the end of the Christian persecution in the early 4th century, you had an influx now of this belief system that people were very much believing for several centuries after that, which influenced the the, the thinking and the writing and uh, of all these church fathers that were trying to reconcile the Bible with Greek philosophy, with the Gnostic sects, with basically trying to make things appealing to the pagans that were coming into Christianity. I talked about this earlier, but the subordinationism that was very common in the church fathers was really also a tactical way of being seeker sensitive, believe it or not, because they tried to make it in alignment with these Greek and Gnostic ideas. Gnosticism and Greek philosophy teaches that you have the Logos and, and sort of the unseen God. Or if you're a Gnostic, you believe in the Demiurge and you have like this evil God that kind of created things and then you have kind of the God that came to save people from that. And, and so you have these beliefs that are just, again, they're wrong, they're Antichrist. But in trying to subordinate Jesus and make him less than the Father, in a sense to make him more appealing to the pagan audience, to make it more in line, but still monotheistic, we're not pagans, but we're monotheistic, but you know, we're, we're kind of like this and see, that's kind of like your Greek stuff. Come on over. All these things led to a lot of misconceptions. Now, of course, subordinationism is rightly declared a heresy, but there were compromises as a result. The responses of the Council of Nicaea and all these various reforms did not actually solve the problem. We looked at that in the monarchical Trinity episode. They compromised and... Anyway, moving on. Neoplatonism had endured had enduring influence on the subsequent history of Western philosophy and religion. In the Middle Ages, Neoplatonic ideas were studied and discussed by Christian, Jewish, and Muslim thinkers. So even though Neoplatonism kind of eventually, you know, lost touch or it was evaporated, it didn't really go anywhere. Nothing new under the sun. Islamic mysticism, Jewish mysticism, Christian mysticism, all drew from these ideas. We're now building towards Gregory Palamas. Christian philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century had direct access to the works of Proclius, Simplicius of Silica, and Pseudo-Dionysius the Aeropagite. And he knew about Neo the other Neoplatonists, such as Platonius and Porphyry, through secondhand sources. So Thomas Aquinas, who was a very big name in church history that a lot of people, especially in the Catholic and, and Orthodox institutionalized religion, 
refer to, Thomas Aquinas is a very big scholar and intellectual, was very much influenced by these ideas. Very interesting. Origins of the term. Neoplatonism is a modern term. The term Neoplatonism has a double function as a historical category. On the one hand, it differentiates the philosophical doctrines of Platonius and his successors from those of the historical Plato. On the other hand, the term makes an assumption about the novelty of Platonius's interpretation of Plato. So Platonius was somebody who interpreted Plato in a particular way, and he created this philosophy. But nonetheless, it still comes from Plato. In the nearly six centuries from Plato's time to Platonius, there had been an uninterrupted tradition of interpreting Plato, which had begun with Aristotle and with the immediate successors of Plato's academy and continued through a period of Platonism, which is now referred to as Middle Platonism. The term Neoplatonism implies that Platonius's interpretation of Plato was so distinct from those of his predecessors that it should be thought to introduce a new period of the history of Platonism. But it's still Platonic philosophy, which involves you know, ideas of like the immaterial is better than the material. It's Gnosticism that we have an immortal soul. All these different things are Platonic philosophies and they have influenced many, many people even today. You have to understand where your beliefs come from because there's been a lot of history that has happened. So this is Neoplatonism, but there's actually some key beliefs about it that I want to read. The One. From, for Platonius, the first principle of reality is the One, an utterly simple, ineffable, unknowable subsistence, which is both the creative source of the universe and the teleological end of all existing things. So you have the one that we're all part of the one and we're all going to be part of the one at some point, which again, it kind of draws on the truth. We're all going to be with God. We were all created by God. But this is again, a lie from the Garden of Eden designed to twist the truth to make you believe that you're divine and that you can go after mystical experiences and to deny the physical world. All these things are so related. Gosh, it's just crazy what a mishmash it is. But hopefully you'll see increasingly how they they connect. Although properly speaking, there is no name appropriate for the first principle, the most adequate names are the one or the good. The one is so simple that it cannot even be said to exist or to be a being. Rather, the creative principle of all things is beyond being, a notion which is derived from the book, from book six of the Republic from Plato. So again, you see these abstract philosophies that have no bearing on reality. They're, they're just so full of conjecture. When in the course of his famous analogy of the sun, Plato says that the good is beyond being in power and dignity. In Platonius's model of reality, the one is the cause of the rest of reality, which takes the form of two subsequent hypostases or substances, nos and soul. Although Neoplatonists af after Platonius adhered to this cosmological scheme in its most general outline, later developments in the tradition also departed substantially from Platonius's teachings in regards to significant philosophical issues, such as the nature of evil. Right, I mean, you don't have a solution for evil. The Bible is the only source of information that solves the problem of evil. But moving on. Emanations. From the one emanated the rest of the universe as a sequence of lesser beings. This is a teaching of Greek Gnostic philosophy. You should ask yourself over and over again as I read these things, why does orthodoxy have parallels with these things? Demiurge or noose. 
The original being initially emanates or throws out the noose, which is a perfect image of the one and the archetype of all existing things. Do you see how this is actually, again, going back to what I just said about subordinationism being a seeker sensitive thing. So you thought seeker sensitive was just a 20th, 20th century type of thing, and it's not. The seeker-sensitive movement began a long time ago, and it's why there is so much false doctrine in Christianity, especially in organized religion. I'm going to read this again. The original being, meaning the one, initially emanates or throws out the noose, which is a perfect image of the one and the archetype of all existing things. This relates to all of the Greek pagan converts that were coming into the church that believe these types of things. That you have a being that is supreme and beyond all understanding, and then you have something that comes from that being, which is kind of lesser, but it's still, you know, it's like a, an emanation or a representation. Now, the Bible tells you that, Jesus, that God became man in the flesh, and that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and people really struggle with that idea. That's why you had so much subordinationism in the early church, because they tried to reconcile it with these Greek philosophies to still be monotheistic, because we're not pan, we're not uh, polytheists anymore, but trying to make it appealing to the understanding of all these Greeks that were like, you know, well, so is so is your God the thing that I was thinking was the one, and Jesus is kind of the thing that emanated from God? Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. That's why subordination was so popular, because it was a way to reconcile this Greek Neoplatonic philosophy with the Bible. But again, you're reconciling the truth with error and coming to a compromise, which resulted in subordinationism, uh, obviously various heresies on the incarnation, which were declared heresies. But then you had monarchical Trinitarianism. We looked at, we looked at the whole begotten issue. We looked at the filioque issue. All these things were results of compromising on error. And if you don't understand the succession of these beliefs and how they influence church history, then it's easy to believe that, well, that's just tradition. It must be true, but it's really not. Moving on. It is simultaneously both being and thought, idea and ideal world. As image, the noose corresponds perfectly to the one, but as derivative, it is entirely different. Do you remember, I hope you watched the monarchical Trinitarian episode, but again, do you see the similarities? Homo uisens, homo uisos, gosh, I remember those words are tough to pronounce, but you had people who argued that Jesus and the Father had the same, they were the same. But then people said, no, 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 they can't be the same. They're similar but different. And that was the, the controversy that led to all the councils and compromises that followed. This is where it comes from. As image, the news corresponds perfectly to the one. But as derivative, it is entirely different, meaning... Do you see the parallel? I hope you see the parallels between this and subordinationist thinking and even monarchical Trinitarian philosophy, which is that, that Jesus emanates from the Father or, or kind of is generated from the Father, spirated from eternity past and all of this philosophy and conjecture when the Bible doesn't say anything like that. The Bible says Jesus is God made flesh. He's equally God to God the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no distinction. There's distinction of personhood, but there's no distinction of anything else. I and the Father are one. I mean, you, you can't get more clear than that. Jesus says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Only Yahweh says that in the Old Testament. 
And of course, in the, in the uh, book of Revelation, it's Almighty God who says, I'm the first and the last. Then 10 verses later, it's Jesus. So do the math. It's very simple. But again, if you're stuck in tradition and trying to put God into a box of separate, like, okay, there's the unseen, but then there's something that comes from that. Now I have two boxes for things because I have to understand things in boxes. Our reality is a reality that is limited by two things cannot be in the same space at the same time. And that applies to how you think about things. That's why all these things re rely on putting God into boxes of various understandings and, okay, he goes here, Jesus goes there. But that's not how it works. The Bible says Jesus is distinct from the Father. That's number one. But then he also says, the Bible also says that Jesus and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have all these unity passages that you have to reconcile, which subordinationists and similar-leaning theologies, like the monarchical view, do not address properly. But moving on, what Plutonius understands by the noose is the highest sphere accessible to the human mind, while also being pure intellect itself. Noose is the most critical component of idealism, Neoplatonism being a pure form of idealism. The demiurge, the noose, is the energy, or ergon, does the work, which manifests or organizes the material world into perceivability. Again, do you see the distinction? Energy comes from the being distinction of essence and energies. This is very, very important to understand where Gregory Palamas gets his ideas. He didn't just come up with them. Nothing new under the sun. This is what the Bible tells you. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. The, the testament of the Bible is the only thing that's truly different. Everything else is just the lie from the Garden of Eden. It really is. It's just repackaged and reflavored. But this is a Neoplatonic idea that there's essence and energies. It's coming from Neoplatonism. Celestial hierarchy is also part of Neoplatonism, which has the one, which is God, the good, the transcendent, the ineffable. Then you have the hypercosmic gods, those that make the essence, life, and soul, the demiurge, the creator, the cosmic gods, those who make being, nature, matter, including the gods known as, to us from classical religion. So you have this ranking of, of various spiritual principalities within the, this belief system, which again, this, if you know Gnosticism and if you know all these, you know, these, these occult belief systems, they're all the same. They're, they're just different flavors of this idea that the ultimate thing is the unseen and you have to transcend reality and become like the, the unseen and that this creation is evil because it's made by the demiurge. Return to the one. Neoplatonists believe human perfection and happiness were attainable in this world without, wait, without awaiting an afterlife. Perfection and happiness seen as synonyms could be achieved through philosophical contemplation. Also extremely, extremely important to understand this. I'm going to read this again. Neoplatonists believed human perfection and happiness were attainable in this world without having to await an afterlife meaning you can be sanctified in this life. Some Protestants believed in entire sanctification. Eastern Orthodox teach theosis, becoming like God. And how, how did the Neoplatonists Platonists achieve that? Well, perfection and happiness could be achieved through philosophical contemplation. Contemplation or contemplative prayer is going to be a big theme in when we discuss hesychasm. All people return to the one from which they emanated. 
again, transcendent experiences through contemplation. The Neoplatonists believe in the preexistence and immortality of the soul. This is it right here. This is the, I've talked about this so many times in this old can of worms. The Bible doesn't teach that you have an immortal soul after you die. The Bible teaches you have a contingent soul. And why that's important is because the Bible teaches resurrection. The emphasis was always on resurrection. When you die, that's it. So if you're deceived into thinking there's this grandiose afterlife that you can work for, you're departing from the gospel of grace. That's how the devil deceived pagan cultures, by making them offer sacrifices to him and to their fallen angel gods, because they thought they were going to procure an afterlife through these sacrifices, because they believed in all these ranks and orders and, you know, in the spiritual realm. Do you see how the deception has created all of these various religions throughout history and how, in turn, they have influenced Christianity? through how the pagans got converted into Christianity in the early church. But there's no difference here. Now, notice all the similarities that we have with Eastern Orthodox teaching. We haven't gone to Gregory, Gregory Palamas yet, but Gregory Palamas made a distinction between essence and energies. This is from Neoplatonism. Notice the, you know, the idea that you have to return to the one, which is, again, this idea that in Orthodoxy, which you'll see through hesychasm, contemplative prayer that you can become like God, become perfect and, and transcend and, and connect to the unseen mystical experience. All of this ties together. It's all rooted in pagan philosophy and Greek philosophy and occultism and mysticism, which is very unfortunate. Now, most Eastern Orthodox Christians do not do these types of things, but it is part of the religion because you have Mount Athos, you have various monk orders that are seen as pious. It's a pious thing to be you know, a monk that's basically sitting in prayer all day and having mystical experiences. And they are seen as authorities on this. So these types of things, you have to realize what your religion is teaching you and where they come from, because they don't come from God. They don't come from the Bible. They come from tradition. And tradition is most of the time not coming from God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their tradition, and we should be aware of that. So the ideas of Neoplatonism and Manichaeism were very influential around the time of the early church, meaning 321 AD to a couple centuries after that, to the 6th or 7th century when Islam started to take over. Which is interesting because if you know anything about the Catholic Church and how it created Islam to subjugate the Middle East, probably this was part of the goal in the sense that Manichaeism was a competition to the Catholic system. And so it had to be destroyed, which is a very interesting tangent. But nonetheless, these ideas were extremely influential. And even after the 6th and 7th centuries, they were very influential. Most of the church fathers were influenced by Greek philosophy or they were Greek philosophers themselves. Converts, they were influenced by Gnosticism, mysticism. Greek ideas and philosophy were very prevalent in those times. And they're very contrary to the Bible, as you hopefully have seen. If not, then, you know, stick around. Well, we'll keep getting into it. But remember, again, I've talked about this before, but in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul says this, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, i.e. philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, because they demand signs, and folly to the Gentiles. Meaning the Greeks thought this was foolishness. 
Many times when Paul preached the resurrection, he was laughed at by the Greeks. Like, what are you talking about? There's an immortal soul. How could we be resurrected? That doesn't make any sense. Why would I want to be here on earth when I'm supposed to transcend and be in the spirit realm and be one with the, with the one, with the, un, with the unseen God? I have to be like God. Why would I be resurrected? You see the folly, or I should say the, the, how they would perceive the resurrection and the gospel as folly and why Paul says it's folly to the Gentiles. Why is it folly to the Gentiles? Because they had these belief systems. But these belief systems were imported back into the church and they departed from the gospel as soon as Christianity became legalized. So hopefully you're starting to see the trends because now we got to get into the meat and potatoes, which is Gregory Palamas and Hesychasm and Palamism and all these different beliefs that Gregory Palamas created. So this is Gregory Palamas, probably what he looked like, who knows, but he was the Archbishop of Thessalonica, and he's a church father. He's, he's a very influential figure, especially in the Orthodox Church. Let's read about him a little bit. Gregory Palamas was a Byzantine theologian and Eastern Orthodox cleric of the late Byzantine period. He's in around the 1300s. A monk of Mount Athos and later Archbishop of Thessaloniki, he is a form, he's, a famous, he's famous for his defense of Hesychast spirituality the uncreated character of the light of the transfiguration. Again, you should, by now that you have the context, you should be able to read these things with better understanding. The uncreated character of the light of the transfiguration and the distinction between God's essence and energies. His teaching unfolded over the course of three major controversies with the Italo-Greek Barlam, with the monk Gregory Kindinus, and with the philosopher Gregoras, all in the 1300s. His theological contributions are sometimes referred to as Palamism, which we'll look at, and his followers as Palamites. Gregory has been venerated as a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church since 1368. Within the Catholic Church, he has also been called a saint. Pope John Paul repeatedly called Gregory a great theological writer. So he has the endorsement of the man of sin. That should also raise your eyebrow. Since 1971, the Melkite Greek Catholic Church has venerated Gregory as a saint. Some of his writings are collected in the Philokalia. And since the Ottoman period, the second Sunday of Great Lent is dedicated to the memory of Gregory Palamas in the Orthodox Church and Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. The Byzantine Synodicon of the Orthodoxy also celebrates his memory and theology with, while condemning his opponents, including some anti-Palamites who flourished after Gregory's death. So he's a very important figure in Orthodoxy and even in some Eastern Catholic uh, churches. Hesychast controversy. Hesychasm attracted the attention of Barlam, a man who either converted to Orthodoxy or was baptized Orthodox, who encountered Hesychasts and heard descriptions of their practices during a visit to Mount Athos. He had also read the writings of Palamas, himself an Athenite monk. Trained in Western scholastic theology, Barlam was scandalized by hesychasm, which he should be, as you learn about it, it's, it is scandalous, and began to combat it both orally and in his writings. As a private teacher of theology in the Western scholastic mode, Barlam propounded a more intellectual and pro propositional approach to the knowledge of God than the hesychast taught, because hesychasm was mystical. It's a mystical practice. 
On the Hesychast side, the controversy was taken up by Palamas, who was asked by his fellow monks at Mount Athos to defend Hesychasm from the attacks of Barlam. Palamas was well-educated in Greek philosophy. There you go. That should be a nice little pin to put in your mind. Gregory wrote a number of works in its defense and defended Hesychasm at six different synods in Constantinople, ultimately triumphing over its attackers in the Synod of 1351. So Gregory, our good old friend Gregory, was very educated in Greek philosophy. So much so that he de- he defended this mystical practice of hesychasm, which you're going to learn about, and he succeeded. So a very influential figure in the early church. Now, let's look at Palamism. And Palamism is basically what the philosophy that Gregory left behind, the people who followed him. But contemplative prayer, remember contemplation? And how Neoplatonists believe that the the way that you become perfect and you become in tune with the one is through contemplative prayer, through contemplation, basically. Contemplation is a mystical term. Whenever you hear contemplation or contemplative prayer, it is a mystical buzzword. So you sh- your ears should perk up whenever you hear that, because either Catholic or Orthodox doesn't matter. Mysticism is pretty universal. It's contemplation, transcendental meditation. An exercise long used among Christians for acquiring contemplation, one available to everyone, whether to be the clergy or of any secular occupation, involves focusing the mind by constant repetition of a phrase or word. Very interesting. Remember that particular phrase. St. John Cassian Recommended use of the phrase, O God, make me make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Another formula for repetition is the name of Jesus. Or the Jesus prayer, which is, O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, which has been called the mantra of the Orthodox Church. Again, if you... We're going to look at the scriptures in just a second. I, I really hope that people have eyes to see. I was Orthodox, I grew up Orthodox, and these things are pagan practices. Although the term Jesus prayer is not found in the fathers of the church, this exercise, which for the early fathers represented just a training for repose, the later Byzantines developed it into a spiritual work of its own. There you go, because they were influenced by Greek philosophy and mysticism. Attaching to it technical requirements and various stipulations that became a matter of serious theological controversy and remain of great interest to Byzantine, Russian, and other Eastern churches, which is hesychasm. I don't know if I highlight anything else here, but yeah. So hesychasm, let's read about it now, because now we're going to look at how this Jesus prayer and how hesychasm, this repetitive praying, how did it develop into a mystical practice? Very early on, early on in the church. We're looking at, you know, a couple centuries within Constantine's edification of the churches as being legal now. And all the Greek converts, all the Greek philosophy... It eventually led to this mystical Christian practice. Very, very interesting. Hesychasm is a contemplative monastic tradition in the Eastern Christian traditions of the Eastern Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church, in which stillness, hesychia, is sought through uninterrupted Jesus prayer. While rooted in early Christian monasticism, it took its definitive form in the 14th century at Mount Athos, which today Mount Athos is seen as the pinnacle holy site of orthodoxy. And of course, if you know these things, you realize this is 
These people are having mystical experiences and doing mysticism in occult practice. They're very deceived. And I, I know it's going to probably piss off a lot of Orthodox people, but you have to go where the evidence points you. Look at the, the context I've belabored to show you and look at where these things come from. The Neoplatonism and Manichaeism and all these Gnostic philosophies led into Christians repackaging this and creating a, a mystical practice or a mystical system to have mystical experiences, which is no different from the occult. It really isn't. And, and they're being deceived into thinking that this is good and godly and in alignment with God's word when it's not. Origins and development. Metropolitan Callistos Ware, a scholar of Eastern Orthodox theology, distinguishes five distinct uses of the term hesychasm. So let's see, five different aspects. Solitary life, a sense equivalent to eremitical life in which the terms used since the fourth century. The practice of inner prayer aiming at union with God on a level beyond images, concepts, and language. Do you see? Do you see what I see? I hope you do. Remember Neoplatonism, what is the idea? We gotta be one with the, the transcendent thing. And we do that through repetitive prayer and contemplation. The goal of hesychasm is the practice of inner prayer aiming at union with God. We're gonna look at this. All these things are easily refuted if you have a solid grasp of the New Testament. You are already one with Christ. You do not need to do contemplative prayer to unify yourself with God. Number three, the quest for such union through Jesus' prayer, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, and saying that over and over and over and over and over again until something happens, which is a pagan idea. doesn't matter that you're using the word Jesus. It's a pagan practice, and Jesus warned you not to do it. I'll show you in the Bible where it says it. A particular psychosomatic technique in combination with Jesus' prayer Use of which technique can be traced back to at least the third, 13th century. We're going to look at this psychosomatic technique. The theology of Gregory Palama. So all of these things together form hesychasm. It's a culture. It's a particular practice. It is a belief system. It is a, a way of doing things. Addition of psychosomatic techniques. St. Nicephorus, the hesychast in the 13th century, a Roman Catholic who converted to the Eastern Orthodox faith and became a monk at Mount Athos. Now, isn't that something? If you have done any research into the Catholic Church and end times views, and you know who Mystery Babylon is because she's the mother of abominations on the earth, isn't it something that the creator of the psychosomatic technique that basically influenced these practices came from Roman Catholicism? And he went straight to Mount Athos. Isn't that something? The root of Manathos comes from Mystery Babylon. Gosh, that's probably going to upset so many people, but the truth is the truth. He advised monks to bend their heads toward their chest, attach their prayer to their breathing, while controlling the rhythm of their breath and to fix their eyes during prayer on the middle of the body. Concentrating the mind within the heart in order to practice nepsis or watchfulness, while this is the earliest attestation of psychosomatic techniques in Hesychast prayer, According to Callistos, where its origins, sorry for this <laughs> motorcycle, my goodness, while its origins may well be more ancient, influenced by the Sufi practice of Dikir, the memory and invocation of the name of God, which in turn may have been influenced by yoga practices from India, though it's also possible 
that Sufis were influenced by early Christian monasticism. It's all the same stuff. Today, I've talked about how Kundalini, this Kundalini spirit, has come into the church through the charismatic movement. There's no difference. These mystical experiences that people are searching after, God, oh, God, i look for revival. Where's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is in you, and he's working through you. That's what the Bible tells you. But if you're chasing spiritual experiences, you're going to have a counterfeit spirit. And this is very plainly obvious. The charismatic movement is nothing short of kundalini repackaged. But these things are very old. That's not, the charismatic experience isn't the only one. And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church started that too. But that's another episode in my end time series. Go check it out, Counterfeit Spirit. But the early Christian practices were influenced by Sufi practices, were influenced by yoga practices. Eastern, remember Manichaeism was from the East to the West, all the way up to the Han Dynasty. That's a pretty far reach. All that information from India, from the East, had a way to communicate back and forth, back and forth. Nothing new under the sun. And the guy who, St. Nikephorus, the Hesychast, who instructed the monks to basically pitch over, pitch themselves over, I can't really do it because I have the microphone, but pitched over themselves, focusing, shaking, you know, talking, saying the same thing over and over again. And, and like, that's not at all what the Bible tells you. Goodness, it's not. And if you don't see that, then you really need to read the Bible. You really need to get some discernment because these things are pagan practices, this mysticism designed to take you out of your mind into a transcendent state where you are susceptible to being deceived. The Bible tells us to be sober-minded because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour and that he also transforms himself into an angel of light. As is clearly seen from People who've gone into caves and had spiritual experiences like Joseph Smith, like Muhammad, Loyola, Ignatius of Loyola with his spiritual exercise. There's nothing new under the sun. All this stuff is designed to put you in communion with the spirit world, but not in a way that is good. Not in a way that is good at all. So this contemplative prayer is really something to watch out for. Now, there's another thing called theoria which is very, very interesting. The primary task of the Hesychast is to engage in mental ascesis or ascetism. Remember this as well. Remember all of these things. We're going to come back to it and refute it with scripture. The Hesychast is to bring his mind into his heart so that as to practice both the Jesus prayer and sobriety with his mind and his heart. In solitude and retirement, the Hesychast repeats the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner, the Hesychast prays the Jesus prayer with the heart, with meaning, with intent, for real. He never treats the Jesus prayer as a string of syllables whose surface or overt verbal meaning is secondary or unimportant. He considers bare repetition of the Jesus prayer as a mere string of syllables, perhaps with a mystical inner meaning beyond the overt verbal meaning, to be worthless or even dangerous. This emphasis on the actual real invocation, you're invoking Jesus now, mirrors an Eastern understanding of mantra, I was just going to say, in that the physical action, voice, and meaning are utterly inseparable. Now, if you have studied Eastern mysticism, like I said, I was very involved in New Age stuff. It's not my first rodeo. There is nothing different under the sun. 
This is just Eastern mysticism repackaged. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff. When you're shaking and and saying a repetitive thing and, and just being so present to the moment that you're trying to transcend the moment, this is mysticism. The Bible never tells you to do that, ever. It tells you the opposite, actually, to be sober-minded. So, very, very important. Now, let's read about the Coptic Orthodox. I think that's the last one I have on here. Some clerics are wary of the Hesychast practices of the Jesus Prayer that develop later in the Eastern churches. Good, they are. Father Mata El Meskin, a Coptic Orthodox clergyman, com commented that Hesychasm rid the concept of unceasing prayer from its simplicity, shifting its acetal position as a humbling practice by itself to a mystical position with programs, stipulations, technical and mechanical bases, degrees, objectives, and results. Yeah, it became it went from something that was more of a, a ascetic practice to its its own spiritual thing, its own religion in a sense. In 2016, His Holiness Metropolitan Bishoy of Damietta, head of the theology department in the Institute of Coptic Studies and secretary of the Coptic Orthodox Church, Synod from 1985 until 2012, criticized the God essence energy distraction and refused palimism. So there are people within the Orthodox tradition that still have their heads on their shoulders. Because again, this essence energy distinction, palimism, Hesychasm, it's all based on mysticism and pagan philosophy. If you know your history. Western views of hesychasm. In the later 20th century, it saw a remarkable change in the attitude of Catholic theologians to Palamas, a rehabilitation of him that has led to increasing parts of the Western church considering him a saint. Especially after Vatican II, where the charismatic renewal happened with the Vatican, and now they're shifting in this direction. Do you see the overall shift towards spiritual and mystical experiences? The Catholic Church created the modern charismatic movement, and now they're warming up to this hesychasm stuff too. Some Western scholars have argued that there is no conflict between Palamas's teaching and Catholic thought. Isn't that something? We all have the same God. We all have the same spiritual experiences. Look, we're charismatic too. According to Callistos Ware, some Western theologians, both Catholic and Anglican, see the theology of Palamas as introducing an inadmissible division within God. True. You're right. I agree with the Catholic theologians in this case. However, others have incorporated his theology into their own thinking. This is why I mentioned also Catholics in this particular episode. Because these types of things are very, very seductive and dangerous because they're philosophy. So... What do, we, what do we take from that? How do we put it together? Well, Matthew 6, 7 through 8. Let's see what that says. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, i.e. the Greeks and the Indians with their mantras. For they think that they will be heard for their many prayers and their many words. This is such an important verse. Jesus tells you in verse 8, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. There is so much to talk about even within these two verses, which is so important. First off, Jesus is telling you, don't be like the pagans, doing these repetitive prayers and Lord Jesus Christ have mercy, I mean, Lord Jesus Christ have mercy, until you have some transcendental experience. That's a mantra. You are getting out of your body and putting yourself up for deception in the spirit realm. 
The devil comes dressed as an angel of light, and he deceives you into thinking you're doing good. But really, you're moving away from the gospel. Because Jesus also tells you something very, very crucial. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask it. So don't be like them. Why? What are they trying to do? What does Jesus say? He says they will be heard. They think they will be heard for their many prayers. So what's the philosophical underpinning? Well, orthodoxy, and here's how it all ties together with salvation. Orthodoxy is synergistic, meaning they believe in free will salvation. So the, the thing that Jesus is warning you against is thinking that you can get something by doing it. They think that they'll be heard for their many words. Meaning the more words you say, okay, Lord, if I say this a thousand times a day, now I'm really doing something. That is contra to the gospel. It is anti-gospel. Because you are relying on your own effort to beckon God to you or to invoke God, as we read earlier, or to become one with God. You're the one doing something. It's the lie from the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. You can do something to be like God. So we have to be very careful because Jesus warned you not to be like the pagans. And in within that warning, he also warned you why you shouldn't be like the pagans. Because they are relying on their own effort to summon God or to be like God or to invoke God or whatever else. You can't do that. God has already done the work. You can become one with him through faith and being born again. And that's it. You're not relying on your own effort to do anything. God is working through you and he will... His Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance when you receive it at the resurrection. Hesychasm is mysticism. It comes from Mystery Babylon, no surprise. L look at my end times episodes on Mystery Babylon and the woman riding the beast. You will see that indeed she is called the mother of abominations. If you know your history and how all the things that came from the Catholic Church, there's nothing different. If you're Catholic, again, I have nothing against you. I really don't. Learn the truth. Get out of this system so that you don't share in her plagues, is what the Bible says. But there's no difference between this and pagan traditions. I've covered a lot of the counterfeit spirits, so go check it out. Look at the Jesuits and their influence through the spiritual exercises, through all the things that they've influenced, the, the charismatic movement. It's all the same stuff. The teachings of Palamas contradict scripture in many, many ways. It introduces a division within God, which some people rightly have objected to, even within the Orthodox Church. So I'm not speaking out of turn here. It, de it defends mysticism, I and mean, he was basically defending hesychasm. And by that point, remember, be before, by the point Palamas was defending hesychasm, it had already become the mystical practice because of St. Nikephoros before that, where he was giving them that psychosomatic technique and all these mystical things. It had already become that. So Gregory Palamas knew what he was defending. He was very educated in Greek philosophy. So obviously, he was partaking to these mystical beliefs. I can't comment on whether he was a true Christian or not, but at the end of the day, he was defending paganism. It teaches that there's this unknowable God that you must commune with, when reality, God has revealed to you that the incarnation is how God is going to communicate with you through Jesus. Yes, he's not here right now, but Jesus has a body, and God has a body, and he will, have a, he will be on earth where we can be with him forever. That is the revelation of Scripture. Not that you must do something in order to 
climb up to heaven and communicate with God and commune with him spiritually. God wants to be seen and known, and that is why there's the Christ. So hesychasm's fundamental underpinnings, which are from Greek philosophy and pagan philosophy, are false, and they're contrary to the gospel because they're works-based. Now, Palamas, let's put this together because now we got to integrate some things with salvation, with Eastern Orthodoxy, and how all of these things come together into producing the religion that Eastern Orthodoxy is. Palamas struggled with trying to understand being conformed to the image of Christ, which is sanctification. Now, the biblical understanding of that is once you're born again, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you through his work. Of course, there's ups and downs, you make mistakes, but ultimately he sanctify you. He's sanctifying you, conforming you to the image of Christ. Palamas couldn't really understand that. He couldn't deal with it. So he had to make a distinction between the unseen God that nobody ever sees, and that's like the supreme deity, and the emanations and energies and all those things that we talked about that you do see that you're being conformed to. So we're being conformed to the thing that we do see, but there's fundamentally an unknowable God that's there. And then, of course, you can communicate with that unknowable, you know, source through various mystical practices. So he came up with this idea of, of energies and essence to basically justify being more like God. He, he thought we couldn't be like the invisible God, so he had to create a distinction. But this distinction was very controversial, as you've seen even within the Orthodox Church. And it was rejected by the West, which was a good thing. But interestingly enough, the West is what led to hesychasm in Mount Athos, so there's that too. But today, Eastern Orthodoxy still stumbles over this with their view of the Trinity, with, with a lot of things, because it's again, it's all interconnected. The view of the Trinity being monarchical and the essence and energies and hesychasm, it's all part of this works-based manifestation. Now, when I say that, I base it off the Confession of Dositheus, which is a 16th century document that was in response to the Protestant Reformation. And you can read it here, the Confession of Dositheus, Eastern Orthodox, 1672. And if you go down to Decree 13, somewhere. Okay, here it is. We believe a man to be not simply justified through faith alone, but through faith which works through love. That is to say, through faith and works. Boom, there it is. Your religion is contrary to the gospel. But the idea that faith can fulfill the function of a hand that lays hold on the righteousness which is in Christ and can then apply it unto us for salvation, which is what the Bible teaches, we know to be far from all orthodoxy. Leave your religion if you're a true Christian. You must leave it. Your religion teaches that the idea that faith bringing righteousness to you the righteousness of Christ, which is what the Bible teaches, is far from all orthodoxy and that you are justified by faith and works. That is not what the gospel teaches. Jesus died in your place so that through your faith in that work, God can apply that to your account as a propitiation and forgive you and give you Christ's righteousness. Christ took the punishment you deserved. You and I deserve to be on that cross. 
And the exchange is that you get his righteousness through faith. If that's far from all orthodoxy, then you as a Christian who are concerned for the truth and want to be a Christian and want to be in a relationship with God, then you should leave that religion because this is what that religion is based on. So very important. When I say that orthodoxy is a, a workspace religion, this is what I base it on. Now, there's also this concept of theosis, which, again, we'll, we'll tie all this together. It's all just a mishmash within the orthodoxy, but it's all part of the same stuff. You'll see how these things tie together. What is deification in the Eastern Orthodox Church, or theosis? According to Eastern Orthodoxy, it's a process by which one becomes one with God, and, and this is seen as the goal of the Christian life. So the goal of the Christian life is to become one with God. Now, having read what we just that first sentence, does anything, do any alarm bells ring up? Remember the Finnick Fox that I post all the time with the big ears. Does anything pop up for you when I say the goal of the Christian life is to become one with God? The goal of theosis and deification. To become one with God. That should remind you of everything we've just read. This unity with God is a mystical concept that is often misunderstood by Western thinkers. No, we understand it very well. It's mysticism and it's pagan. The Eastern Orthodox Church is staunchly Trinitarian, and the term deification should not be misunderstood to imply that a human being can actually become God or a God, nor does this amount to pantheism. It's just a few steps from that. It is said that man cannot become one with God in his essence, but he can become one with his energies. Again, you see that distinction between something that you can never really touch, but then there's there's something that is seen. Love, for instance, is a divine energy, and it is possible for a believer to be fully united and overcome by God's love. This is philosophy. It's just, it's just platonic idealism is what it is. If you know anything about Plato and idealism, it's just, it's just conjecture. Moving on. The thinking behind the doctrine of deification runs along this line. One day we will be transformed, we will all be transformed into the image of Christ. And it should be our goal to become as much like him as possible in this life. We do this by putting sin to death in our lives and practicing spiritual disciplines. Through these means, we can actually become united with God. And it is possible in this life. Do you remember we talked about entire sanctification and we also talked about Neoplatonism? How they believe that you could become one with the source through contemplation in this life? The orthodox teaching of deification in many ways resembles the doctrine of entire sanctification taught by the Wesleyan groups. Yeah, it's the same thing, which is rooted in paganism. What the Eastern Orthodox Church calls deification might be understood by evangelicals as the new birth and subsequent sanctification. No, it's a little different. It's a little different. It's a lot different. Because sanctification, according to the Bible, is what the Holy Spirit does within you. Deification or theosis is what you do through contemplative prayer and discipline and works to become one with God. Very different. But the orthodox content of deification takes sanctification further to include a mystical union with God. Exactly what I just said. The biggest problem with the doctrine is not the term deification, but the means to it, as taught by the Eastern Orthodox Church. According to the New Testament, we are united with Christ, filled with the fullness of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and declared to be right with God on the basis of faith in Christ. True. All true, all biblically sound, you can look it up. 
It is not something that happens as a result of perhaps lifelong pursuit of unity with God through effort and discipline. Yes, because the gospel is based on grace, not works. In Christ, we have become partakers of the divine nature. The actual experience of this can ebb and flow, but the fact of it never changes. It's true. You're going to have ups and downs in this particular life until we get our new bodies. But you are one with Christ, and we'll look at some verses with that. The great question that must be answered by every religion that takes a holy God seriously is, how can a sinful man stand before God and be fully justified? This is the ultimate question. How can God forgive you? There are really only two answers. Either God accepts the sinner based on some effort on the part of the sinner to attain a state of righteousness, or God accepts the sinner on the basis of Christ's righteousness, credited to the sinner. Unfortunately, the Eastern Orthodox process of deification seems to fall squarely within the first option. Exactly. And this is the problem. It falls squarely within that option because Eastern Orthodoxy, according to the Confession of Decythius, is an works and grace based on works and faith. Meaning, it's going to be works. As long as you put works in there, it's always going to be works. Do you see that? How it always becomes the default thing? If you say faith and works, it always defaults to works. That's that's the big thing to realize. And why Eastern Orthodoxy will always defend, oh, we're by faith and grace, but really you're not. Because in practice, people are trying to be one with God or trying to, they don't have any assurance of salvation. They think that running through the rat race of prayers and fasts and various different things is what will help them have right standing with God. But that's not true. You have right standing based on your faith, and that's something that you cannot lose. That's what the Bible teaches, and we're going to look at that. A couple verses to, to keep in mind. Again, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, this is very relevant to you, but mostly to everybody. Romans 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Does this contradict the confession of Decythius? Yes, it does. Or I should say that contradicts the Bible. So which one's right? Well, God is right, meaning religion and tradition are wrong. Romans 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, i.e. being born again and repenting of your unbelief and realizing Christ died for your sins, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that for our old self has crucified with him in order that body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Meaning if you have been born again, you've also died. It's a simultaneous process. But you see, religion doesn't encourage you to be born again. Religion encourages you to do things so that you might have a chance of being right with God. Whereas the Bible tells you have faith, die in the sense of spiritually, so that you can be born again and live in your life. But when you're doing that, you're united. That's what the Bible says. See, it says united with him in death, meaning once you die spiritually, through repentance, you're united with Christ for good. And you will be united with him physically when we have resurrected bodies in the, in the new creation. So we are already one with God. So this idea of mystical unity is in complete contradiction to the Bible. The completion of this journey is the resurrection. It's not something that you do in this life. You cannot reach 
theosis or you know deification or entire sanctification in this life that's the lie from the garden of eden that you can do something to be like god you will be resurrected but that's god's work that he's doing in you and you have to trust in that that's the gospel ephesians 1 verses 13 through 14 in him you also when you heard the word of the truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the holy spirit when you were born again you're given the holy spirit and you were sealed you can't undo the seal. Who is the guarantee of your inherit of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Guarantee. God does not revoke his guarantees, and he's certainly not going to let you revoke it. To put his efforts to shame. Meaning that a true born-again believer cannot lose their salvation because they do not want to do things that are contrary to God. You make mistakes, but you have a new life and new desires, which is so contrary to the Orthodox gospel, which is a false gospel. Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So if you share Abraham's faith, it is guaranteed to you what is guaranteed, the inheritance, a new world, a new body. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22, and who also has put his seal on us, What's the seal? It's the Holy Spirit and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, guarantee. God has given you his guarantee that he's going to be good on his promise. You cannot revoke that because he's changed you. Second Corinthians five, verse five, he who has prepared for us, he who has prepared us for this very, very thing is God who has given us the spirit as the guarantee. He has prepared us and he's given us the spirit as a guarantee. If you are a born again believer, you have a new life, a new heart, new desires. That is proof from God that it is the guarantee that he will give you a new body, a new creation, a new life. You already have a new life spiritually, but physically speaking, when Jesus returns, that you are united with Christ. So the Bible teaches that God is doing the work and the conforming is being done by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you take into your own hands to do for yourself to try to become one with God. And this is why you don't need these distinctions between essence and energies and theosis and deification. God already made the distinction between what's noble and unknowable, meaning the Father and the Son. The Old Testament was angel of Yahweh and, um, and invisible Yahweh, basically, that you wouldn't see. The incarnation got rid of that. It integrated everything. You've seen God and you are going to see him to his fullest sense. And you've also seen how he's behaved in life as a human being. So you're going to be conformed to that in this life and in the future when you get a, a full resurrected body. But all of that is God's work. Look at the Triune Monarchy episode. Look at how God will reveal himself fully through Jesus. The Triune being will rule on earth forever. That is the future all of this is headed to. God in the physical world. The world is good. It's good to be here and it's good to be in God's creation, not in the world, but in God's creation and with God in a physical world. What a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, it's really a profound thing, but you see mysticism always tries to escape that and put the emphasis on what is unseen and that's better, which is not true because God created these things to be good. So remember that the church fathers were subordinationists. Because of all their Greek philosophy, they, they could not give equality to Christ. 
with God the Father. They just couldn't. Plus, they were trying to be seeker-sensitive and bring all the pagan converts from Manichaeism, from Gnosticism into the church, and they tried to reconcile all these beliefs into one kind of Christian Gnostic idea. And all these things influenced, especially Eastern Orthodoxy, monarchical Trinitarianism, and hesychasm, and all these mystical practices. They all come from pagan practices, folks. You have to wake up to this stuff. All of this plays into their beliefs, but they're not biblical. These things are always trying to reduce the mystery of God's nature in some way. So that's what you have to pay attention to. You have to put God in a box. Well, he's got essence and energy. Now I understand it. Well, no, you're just trying to make a distinction within God that doesn't exist, that the Bible doesn't tell you, because it's easier on your mind, and now you can work towards being you know, being like God, and you can commune with the unseen. I mean, there's just there's so many pagan influences in these beliefs. I hope you've spotted them so far. But again, the subordination stuff, the, the, the seeker-sensitive stuff with the deity and the logos with the Greeks, it, you can see it's nothing new. People believe that for a long time. And that influence, these are counterfeits of the truth. The devil knew that Jesus became God, uh, God became man in the incarnation. So he created all these counterfeit ideas to deceive people. And they did deceive people into this mystical version of Christianity and into other mystical practices. Now, Palamas, in my opinion, was probably too focused on worldly things and fleshly things. Not that he was a worldly person, but he was too focused on the flesh and too obvious things because, again, he was thinking, well, how can we be conformed to the image of God? He didn't have faith in God's work. He He was a synergist. He believed in free will salvation which a lot of people did because they came from Greek philosophy. The Greeks were all about this stuff, especially if, again, if you understand how these things are connected through immortality of the soul, through Gnosticism, all these things are free will based and they influence the perspective of salvation that orthodoxy has taken on. But he was very focused on, on these things and he was a synergist and he couldn't reconcile how we're being conformed. And yet the New Testament is all about being conformed by God's work. It's not something you're doing. And the New Testament is all about spiritual things. New birth, circumcision of the heart, spiritual warfare. There's a spiritual temple. The church is a spiritual reality, not some institution or denomination. So when the Orthodox say that they're the true church, you're not. Obviously you're not. I mean, you teach heretical things, to to be honest with you. These are mystical pagan things. The true church is the body of believers who trust in Christ. That is the spiritual temple. But the Bible talks about spiritual things. And if you're focused on external things, then you're likely to stumble over those things and create all sorts of theories like Gregory Palamas did. Palamas was a synergist, like I said, and that affected his view of having to do something to invoke God or do something to be one with God. That's the error. You do not do something to be one with God. You are already one with God through faith. And God is doing the work in you. So important. But that leads Orthodox now, full circle, to a works-based salvation and to ultimately not having security in the work of God. Where the Bible makes it so... The Bible belabors that you have eternal security in God's work. But you have to reject this synergistic lie that you have to do something in order for God to like you. I know it's tough. I've been there myself. I went from orthodoxy to the new age movement. 
Both of these are synergistic in nature. So I know the struggle, but you have to see what the Bible says. And that's why I've picked out some verses for you to see what the Bible has to say. Romans 5, verse 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and the character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, do you remember the Holy Spirit is a guarantee? That's why the hope that you have doesn't put you to shame. Do not rely on your own effort. Do not try to think that you can invoke God or be one with God or do something to be better or earn any kind of merit from God. We do things because we want to, not because we have to. But nonetheless, you don't have to do anything. God is working through you. And a lot of people stumble over that. They don't get it. Say, well, you can just do whatever you want. No, because a true believer doesn't do whatever they want. A true believer is convicted and they try to please God, but they do so because they want to, not because they have to. This is the mentality that has to be shifted. Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God's love. That includes your own, quote-unquote, free will. So if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you are not aligning with what the Bible is telling you, that a true born-again believer is sustained by God in faith. Romans 11, verse 29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, meaning if God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's given it to you, as a guarantee, do you think you can revoke it? No, you can't. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee of your inheritance. You are not going to be able to revoke it and put God's offer to shame because he didn't give it to everybody. Do you think that he would allow you to do such a thing or make it even possible? Absolutely not, because God's glory is on the line. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, he didn't give everybody, will come to me, meaning assurance that you will believe because the Father gave him to Christ. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Meaning he will sustain and keep you and you will never be cast out. This is what God wants you to know, that he will not cast you out. Meaning you do not need to rely on your effort to try to invoke him or to be one with him or to please him. Of course, you should do things to please God because you want to, because it's enjoyable. But you don't have to and, and because he doesn't like you otherwise. See the point? It's a very important distinction. John 10, verse 28 through 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nobody is going to snatch the people that God the Father gave to Christ out of his hand. It's not possible. Not the devil, not your own mistakes. You cannot be lost once you truly believe in Christ. John 16, verse 8. And when he comes, he being the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit, and he has many, is to convict you of righteousness. In this context, it's because Jesus is leaving. And of course, this is after everything just happened. The apostles are going to question their righteousness. They're going to drift into feeling that maybe they need to do something to be right with God because Jesus isn't here anymore. Their, their mentor, their teacher isn't here anymore. Their leader, their God. But Jesus is telling him, the Holy Spirit that's coming 
will convict you of righteousness because I'm no longer here. Meaning, he'll remind you that you're righteous with God. Now, go back to Confession of Decithius, where they said that the idea that faith can seize the righteousness of Christ, how that's far from all orthodoxy. Is that the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through those people who wrote that confession? When the, when the Holy Spirit is supposed to convict you of righteousness? The answer is no. Because the Holy Spirit convicts you of your right standing with God once you are a born-again believer, a true born-again believer, because it's God's glory that's on the line. Christ's work is perfect. The Holy Spirit is going to remind you of that when you're feeling in doubt. The, the devil is trying to separate you from God by telling you you're guilty and you're never going to be redeemed. you got to do all this stuff to be redeemed and you got to make God like you because you're just a sinner. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Oh my gosh, you just get into this mantra of just pagan stuff, man. It's just pagan stuff. And it's not from God. It really isn't. I hate to say it, but it's not. Titus, or 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we, we will also live with him. Again, same echoes as in Romans. If you've died with him, meaning born again, you will also live with him. Golden chain of connection. It doesn't say if we have died with him, we have the chance of living with him. This is a connected thing. If you repent and have full trust in Jesus and are born again, you will live with him. Connected chain of events. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christ is patient with you when you fail, when you make mistakes, which are inevitable in this life. It, they are inevitable because we are still sinners. We are sinners, but we're forgiven. We're going to be redeemed when we, when Jesus returns. We're going to get new bodies. Now look at this. This is also in the Old Testament. It's the same thing, which is very interesting. Deuteronomy 4 verse 31. For the Lord your God, for Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is early on in the Old Testament. And yet you have these shadows of eternal security, of shadows of encouragement and reassurance in God's work, but you have to trust in God and not at your own works and your own effort. Lamentations 3, verse 22 through 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. True, great is your faithfulness. One of the most depressing books of the Bible, and yet such optimistic words about trusting in God and trusting in his work in his power to deliver you, and him to do the work. If you believe that you have to do something on a regular basis to maintain your salvation, to commune with God, to become more like God, you have to do these things, you're not trusting in God to do that for you. It doesn't mean you're not going to do anything, because God will put desires into your heart to do certain things. But that's because you're walking hand in hand with him. When you're trying to take the reins and do all these things yourself, and not trusting in God, and, and you think that you might lose your salvation, you're departing from the gospel of grace. You really are. Now, Palamas also defended the hesychasm as a way to achieve theosis, which is, again, all these things now are coming to a head. They're all connected. 
theosis being more like God through contemplative prayer and through these various exercises and hesychasm is something that is from pagan origins and Neoplatonic philosophy. Really, I mean, it even goes back to Plato. These are mystical things, and Palamas defended them. Hesychasm is a mystical practice that's contrary to the Bible, and it's contrary to what the Bible teaches you about prayer, which we just looked at in Matthew uh, chapter 6, I believe, with Jesus. It also shares a lot in, in common with pagan things like yoga, mysticism, old religions like Manichaeism, Gnosticism. It's, you should hopefully by now see the parallels and why it's wrong. Now, the goal of hesychasm is to drop your mind into the heart. Remember what we read, which is basically, if you look at other practices, again, I'm very familiar with these from my New Age background. When you drop the mind into the heart, this is transcendental meditation. You are not allowing your cognition to be functioning. You're basically trying to subvert that and transcend it into a more altered state. That's transcendental meditation. Again, be sober-minded because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for somebody to devour. And he also appears as an angel of light. So all these mystical experiences where these people are having through hesychasm, and they say they, they see these rays of light or whatever else, what does the Bible have to tell you about that? You're not being sober-minded. The devil is always looking for people to devour with, through the deception. And he appears as an angel of light. And you're basically giving way to these spiritual experiences despite what the Bible has told you. So that's why I said these people are very deceived. And again, that's going to upset a lot of people because Athos, Mount Athos is very idolized in the Eastern Orthodox Church. People will get these little cards, prayer cards, or they get people, monks at Mount Athos to say various prayers for them. I mean, it's a whole thing. Again, what is the underpinning attitude? The underpinning attitude is you don't have a mediator in Jesus. You need a monk at Mount Athos who is closer to God because he's on a mountain and he's doing all these hesychast exercises to communicate that prayer to God. Now it's going to get to God. Do you see the problem? How this is outside of the gospel of grace? Gosh, I hope you do. I hope people really realize this because orthodoxy is so full of these things and we have to avoid trance-like states. We have to avoid, you know, being just in supernatural type of, not supernatural, but these types of experiences. These are mystical experiences. But the Orthodox religion tells you otherwise. It tells you that the ultimate experience is the trance-like state. It is the communion with God that is unseen. That's what the ultimate experience is, according to the Orthodox Church and into hesychasm and all these different practices. So, final thoughts. Gregory Palamas had many contrary views to the Bible. Gregory Palamas created the concepts of the modern Eastern Orthodox view of the Trinity, of essence and energies, but he based that off of his inability to comprehend how he would how we are getting conformed to the image of Christ because he was a synergist meaning free will salvation and he also was very influenced by pagan philosophy greek philosophy but nevertheless he created these beliefs that the eastern orthodox church clings to and teaches still to this day eastern orthodox has many mystical influences and parallels with mysticism like neoplatonism the occult Manichaeism, all these Gnosticism we looked at in great detail. The Eastern Orthodox view as a result, because it has these parallels, 
their view on salvation does not give them certainty in God's work. They depart from the gospel. Their official view is by faith and works. They reject the idea that you can lay hold of Christ's righteousness through faith, which is what the Bible teaches. I showed you scriptures. I also showed you that God gave you the Spirit as a born-again believer as a guarantee that you cannot undo God's work. This is the teaching of the Bible, but so many depart from it, including Catholics and including Protestants today too. Protestants are no better. that They still have succumbed to the idea of free will salvation, that it's us who must do <clears throat> something as opposed to God doing the work. Controversial issue these days, but it's nonetheless the truth. If you're an Eastern Orthodox or if you know somebody, I hope you will see the simplicity of the gospel. If you know somebody in your circle in your family who's Eastern Orthodox, send them this video. If they have the patience to watch everything, then send them this video, or at least send them the Bible verses I covered. Talk to them, engage them in conversation about eternal security, about God's work, about the distinction between doing things because you have to or because you need to. Very, very important. Grace doesn't mean a license to sin. This is something a lot of Eastern Orthodox stumble over. Because again, they think, well, God forgave me, but now I have to do something in order to maintain that forgiveness. No, God forgave you. And part of that forgiveness is giving you the Holy Spirit, which is a transformative new life through the second birth, with, which comes with new desires and a new heart that wants to please God. God is in control of that. And you will get, you will get a new life as a result. It's not a license to sin. So understanding the power of grace is very important for the Eastern Orthodox because you are not seeing grace as a irresistible power that overwhelms the sinner and transforms them. You're seeing it as more of a coupon that you got to take advantage of through your own effort, which is what Protestants do as well. And Catholics, of course, they're synergistic through their sacramental system. But, you know, we, we see the great revelation of the Bible that tells us over and over again, even in the Old Testament, the announcing of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, all of these things, you are seeing a consistent line through both Testaments that you are being conformed to God, that God is doing the work, that you are not being, you are not the one that's bringing about the outcome. God is, and you have to trust in that. That's the relationship. When you depart from that through mysticism or through whatever else, you're departing from the gospel. So review all those verses earlier that I cited for you from the Bible on eternal security, on salvation, on faith, on justification by faith. Go and check out some of those previous episodes we looked at on the Trinity. And so you understand, especially the monarchical view, why Eastern Orthodoxy, with its understanding of the monarchical Trinity and what we talked about today with all this mysticism, it's, it's all against, it's a real mishmash within Eastern Orthodoxy. Very unique religion. But it's all tied together. And of course, this has been a longer episode. Thank you for being here. I hope you've learned something. I hope you've gotten a sense also for what the Bible says and compared it to the religion of Eastern Orthodoxy so you can see which one is right and which one is not right. I really hope you do. Again, my heart goes out to all my Eastern Orthodox Christian friends because I used to be Orthodox. And again, I've ping pong. I went to Catholic schools. I was all in the New Age personal growth movement. Works-based salvation has been a thing for my life that I've had to continually rip myself from and remember to trust in God's work. So the question is, is tradition right or is God right? Hopefully today you've learned the answer. <laughs>